And now, enjoy this free Jason Modcast show. Friday. It is Friday. Guess what that means? I don't have to work. No, you have to work on Friday. Damn it! I know. It means free ice cream at Little Caesars. Yes. Oh, have you ever had their their uh, their deep dish yet? Deep dish? No. Oh yeah, baby. And I saw they have a pizza there. Uh, what the crap is it? The pretzel crust one. That's the one. Yeah, it's delicious. Yes, I want to try that. Oh, do you know what we should also do? What? Listen to backlogged or uh, back cataloged uh, podcasts while kind of like a, a flashback thing. Yes. Awesome. Yes. Okay, let's do that. Okay. Let's start with who's the boss number two. That sounds like like a great idea to start there. Let's see. This week, Dave gives us an update on the future of the company. Oh, Ooh, wow. That's quite the update because that's from December of 2012, as well as gives a history lesson about Mythmart and makes good on his word about a tale about the time that he didn't own Mythworks. Oh. Boom, boom, boom. I know. <laughs> I want to watch Crudes. Well, we got we to do the, the obligatory movie madhouse callback. Oh, yeah, that's true, too. <laughs> Movies. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, let's see what we can find out about who's the boss. Oh, yeah. The left side dropped out, dude. Did it? Or right side dropped out. One of the sides dropped out. One of yeah. Okay. Anyways, start the episode and we'll figure this out. Alrighty. And we're off. Welcome to Who's the Boss? This is David K. Montoya. Back to you after a week, week and a half of being sick with the flu. Um, not much recording was done within that time. I was pretty much under the weather. The last recording that we did last week was Sibling Revelry when I sat down with my sister and her boyfriend and uh, we talked about the acquisition of Lucas Films and went into other movies and cartoons and whatnot. That Monday when I woke up I just was not feeling well and by see Monday night I, I was full on ill. Um, I did not have a voice so obviously I wasn't able to sit down and record. So I, I called the others and decided that we would go ahead and postpone. Uh, coincidentally, my sister has now caught what I had, and she's quite under the weather, so she's not going to be recording. Hopefully this Sunday uh, she'll be feeling better and we can sit down and get back on schedule to things and, and start recording our podcasts. Uh, but as of right now, um, no, I don't see that happening. S. Sadie Burbank, her and her husband Ernie went off to Las Vegas um, and I hope they had a good trip when I talk to them this coming Monday I'm going to sit down and, and dive in and see what they were up to and if they won you know, the money um, hit a jackpot today I've decided that I want to talk about a few things um, please bear with me, my voice is a little cracky I'm not 100% back to par, but I, I'm here and I want to record, so uh, please bear with me. One of the things that I wanted to talk today about was the the future of MythWorks. 
Uh, last night I sat down and I wrote my state of the company address, which is something that when Russo, Alan Russo, uh, when he owned the company, he put into effect that I would, or he would, or the CEO in general would put out a an address to the company into the public, kind of saying, "Okay, this is where we're going to go." the The last state of the company address I did was back at, I think it was December of 2010, and it was a pretty mucky time. So I, I really had to dive in and, and try to figure out how I was going to fix things, uh, since I was coming back from a hiatus, I guess you could say, and returned as CEO. So that first uh, state of the company address was pretty much about how I was going to fix things. Now, within per protocol, or policy rather, um, I'm supposed to come back after everything took place and, and say, okay, this worked, this didn't work, and okay, and here is my ideas for the forthcoming future. Interesting enough, when I sat down and I started writing, I would say about 90% of what I had come up with to fix the company did go into effect, and it did take place, and wonderfully enough, it has helped the company, and we're back on track. So, as I'm coming up with the ideas, because not only am I writing the, the state of the company address, I also have to develop a new business plan. Last business plan expanded from the end of 2010 to the end of 2012. Well, here we are at the end of 2012, and it was time for me to develop a new business plan. And one of the things that I, I was trying to think was what what to do next. You know, because when we first sat down and we, we did the business plan and we developed things, it was all about survival. We wanted to survive as a company. But now, two years later, it's not about survival. We've, we've implemented all that we needed to to survive. Now the economy is getting better. Sales are getting better. You know, as of 2012, we had a very good sales year. Um, everything that I said that I would do, I've done. We have a new Myth Mart, which, if you've noticed, we've we've really been pumping a lot of uh, spread on that, and that's because we we invested quite a bit of money to develop this new brand of Myth Mart. Originally, it was just a simple little website where you could go and buy all our swag, and and that was pretty much it. Um, and to go back into the future, MythMart actually started in 2001. It was just a, a small little additional page to, uh, we can't call it an online magazine because it really wasn't an online magazine. There was no, no real thing back then. But uh, back in 2001, we had this little website, and we'd put up stories and comics and whatnot. And up in the, the right or left-hand corner, I don't remember off the top of my head, we had um, a little thing that says Myth Mart. And Myth Mart initially started, we, we had signed a contract with this DVD distributor. And um, we were selling DVDs. 
and that was the extent of MythMart. We didn't have our own products to sell at the time. Um, during the 2001, MythMart was just to try to make more revenue because we, we had gone away from selling comic books and we got into the di- digital medium of, of you know websites and whatnot. So really there was no product to sell. We gave away you know, free stuff. So in order to make money, we had to put together this little store. I decided to call it Myth Martin. Again, we were selling uh, DVDs. And that went like that for a long time. Um, it was in 2000, 2004, 2005. It was 2005. Um, I actually moved it from just selling other people's stuff to started, we started selling our own stuff again. Um, and it was connected to the World of Myth magazine at the time. And, and it wasn't even an independent site. It was just, you know, if, what was it? It was the World of Myth calendars that came out. And, and we didn't have no outlet to, to sell these calendars. We had an internal outlet for people that we knew that we were basing a lot of ourselves off of. But we wanted to reach outside of the people that we knew and market this product for the fans that were coming to the World of Myth every month. So I revamped the, the Myth Mart and made it a part of a page in the World of Myth magazine. And that's where we sold the, the World of Myth calendar originally. And then after we did The World of Myth, we went in and we sold our second book. And by that time, we, we again, did the same thing. We, we offered it up through MythMart on The World of Myth. But there was really no externally way for anybody else to know other, unless you followed you know, what was going on in The World of Myth. So we decided that we were going to go and take MythMart and make it an independent entity and I had designed it it was a very simple design Um, it was just more of I wanted to take our stuff and and sell it outside of the fans of the world of myth so we we opened up MythMart as uh, an outside website it was it didn't even have its own you know MythMart address it was and it still is um you know, back then it was Dark Myth Production Studios, so it was www.darkmythproductions.com slash mythmart, and that's how we sold things. But over the years, a lot of people had complained that it was too simplistic. Um, you know, they didn't feel like it was really secure enough to make purchases. Um, so when I came back into the game... In 2010, you like how I spend everything around, by the way. When I came back into the game in 2010, that was one of the things that I wanted to do. Is I wanted to revamp MythMart as something more than just a little website that we sell our stuff off of. So I sat and I, I drew up the design and came up with the idea for a brand new MythMart. And two years later... It literally took that long just to build this website. This website is huge. We came up with the, the MythWorks that you guys know now. The 
MythWorks slash MythMart. And it has gotten rave reviews of, of how much better it was to the way it used to be. And that was one of the things that I implemented in, in the original business plan. And other than that, of course, I, I went on and, and moved our books back to like Barnes and Nobles and Amazon and stuff like that. Um, one of the, the big things was bringing in more readers to our e-magazines. And in the course of two years, everything's come to fruition. So when I, I sat down this time to say, okay, this is where we're at, where are we going? The, the question that really popped into my head was, what's next for us? We've come from survival. We have survived possibly what could be argued as one of the worst times in this co company's history. And we're past it. So I sat down and I started coming up with ideas to to improve. And one of the things that kind of came to my mind was where literature is moving. Um, not only just literature, but, you know, everything in general in the entertainment system is moving into a digital age. And I felt that we were still, for the most part, behind uh, on that transition because we primarily pr presented our stuff in, in paperback form, you know, traditional publications. And I decided that I was going to implement some new protocols to, to help us move into what the coming future. Um, so what's going to happen is we're going to dive really deep into the material that we have already, you know, all our books. And we're going to be moving them to not only just the ebooks that we have, the standardized ebooks, but we have a contract with Amazon. And we're going to be moving them to um, the Kindle device, which I think is a big proponent to sales. Uh, you know, I, I see people walking around with Kindles all the time. And if you sit and think about it, it, I'm missing out on a lot of customers just because it's not Kindle ready. So we're moving that into the Kindle. Um, another thing that we're going to be doing, obviously, because the podcast inspired me, is we're going to be doing audiobooks. Um, I already know someone in mind that I want to to hire to read these books, record them, and then of course we'll sell them through audio. We'll offer it on a CD platform as well as digital download where you can download it to like your MP3 or your phone or both and you can listen to the book as you're doing whatever you want. Another thing is we're also going to be doing a combo uh, of traditional and digital. If you go and you purchase the, the, the combo, you'll get your standardized paperback book, but in the back of the book, you're going to have a website where you'll go to and you'll put in this code that's also on the back of the book, and you'll be able to download a free digital copy, whether it be a PDF standard or for a Kindle. So at this point, I'm trying to expand for the future. Um, 2013 is pretty much going to be a transition stage for us to put everything into effect because obviously we can't put everything out there, you know, just like boom one day and here it is. Um, this is going to take time. So that's what's going to happen in 2013 is we're going to be implementing all these new policies and procedures 
to get ready for full-on sales in the 2014 year. Uh, another thing that I'm putting into effect this coming year in 2013 is we're kind of stepping away from the easing. Um, we've done the, the e-magazine for quite a few years. Um, I believe next year will be nine years. And I, I feel that we've kind of reached our max. And one of the hard parts of being a CEO of a company is deciding what works and what doesn't work. Even though you may love something, if it really doesn't work, then you're putting all this time into a dead horse. And that's the way I kind of feel about online magazines. Though we've survived the, the online magazine revolution, at one point there was a gazillion different online magazines, and most of them have gone out of business or they're going out of business, they're struggling. I feel that we've won and we've reached the full potential of people that we're going to reach. So we've decided to go in and remove the online magazine and we're going to make a transition to printing. Um, we're taking the world of myth and we're taking Herodica and we're actually going to put them in actual paperback form. Um, and I'm really stoked about this to see you know everything come out and, and hold a physical copy of the world of myth in my hands. And of course, other than that, we're, we're going to be um, offering it through digital download as well, you know, PDF or Kindle. Because there's just people that just don't like to hold or to read a, a traditional book or even magazine. So you have to reach out and, and have it available to those people as well. So we're moving away from the e-zine and we're, we're making it a print magazine. What we're going to do, this is the game plan as of right now. Um, we're going to be transitioning. We're going to come out with issue one and start trying to print as many as we can on a, on a continuum. But at the same time, we're going to be putting out brand new issues on a quarterly basis. So not only will you be able to keep up and keep the brand new issues alive, but you'll be able to kind of jump back into the past and read the old stuff as well. And I think one of the things when it comes to printing a magazine like that is with an e-zine, you have to kind of want to go and, and look and read the old stories. But if you're digging around 20 years from now and you find a copy of The World of Myth, and you're like, oh, okay, I remember this. And you sit down and you go back into the past and you start rereading the articles, you start rereading the stories, the poetry, and looking at the artwork... It, it kind of connects you back to it. And, and it'll maybe, possibly want to make you want to see where we're at now and draw you, maybe find out what the new issue is if we're still going that direction, you know, in, in the future. Uh, I, I really think it's a big proponent of the future. And one of the big things that I, I'm going to be kind of dropping early here on Who's the Boss is... It's part of the business plan for me to step down as CEO in the coming future. I've been the CEO for the most part since the inception of this business. Um, 1992, I decided to stop trying to get hired by Marvel and DC and Image. 
And I decided that I wanted to publish so bad. I wanted to see my name, my art, my stories in print so bad um, that I would do it myself. And a, and a very dear person to me, S.M. Morton, said simple words that changed my life forever when I, I asked her, you know, what I should do. You know, should I go start my own business? Should I put my own stuff out there? And she simply said, why not? Go do it. And from that point, I've been making my own stuff. Uh, you know, 20 years has been a long time. I, I've set and, and plotted and planned and guided every single move that we've pretty much ever taken. And I, I feel that I'm at the point as being an executive I think I've, I've reached the conclusion it's been enjoyable there's been so much hard work and so much I had to learn um, you know not only in the beginning about comic books and printing but when we made that transition into making books and novels and novelettes and novellas there was more for me to learn. It wasn't like one day we're like, okay, we're just going to make books, and then we just started making books. It, it's not that simple. You know, we said, okay, we're going to make a book, so let's figure out how to make a book. And I've always been the one to, to say, I will never ask nobody of something that I wouldn't do myself. And if I didn't know how to make a book, how could I ask someone else to make a book? So... I learned how to, to make these products. And it's it's been enjoyable. Like I said, we've had some ups, we had some downs, but it's been enjoyable. Um, I've, I've sincerely enjoyed working with the people that I've worked with. Um, you know, Terry Shearer has really developed this company as much as I have. You know, even though he's been with the company only half the time that I have, well, essentially I started it, but he really implemented professionalism, not only on a business standard, but on a quality standard of, of his editing. You know, 90% of the books that we've produced, whether it be a paperback or a comic book or online material, you know, he's had his fingers in and he's edited. And I owe a lot to him. And I'm very appreciative to him. But I think it's time for me to go. And I, I've been in talks with different candidates to to take my spot. You know, I, I want to bring in something fresh to the company. And like the old MEI slogan new blood, new ideas that's kind of where I'm looking at I want to bring in new blood I want to bring in new ideas because I feel as a CEO executive I'm kind of being redundant and it, it really set things into motion for me when I, I started writing this new business plan is because essentially I wanted to get back to what I knew I know how to make a comic book. I know how to make a book. I know how to make ebooks. So why 
move out of my comfort zone when I know I can make a profit off of these things. But it's not good business, folks. It's it's not. You want to evolve. Not only as a person do you want to evolve, be some more sophisticated, more educated. As a company, you have to evolve and continue to grow and, and keep along with the times. And I feel that as a CEO, I've evolved to as far as I'm going to. So I'm going to bring in a new CEO, hopefully sometime next year, and I'm going to step down. Um, I don't know where Terry stands at this point. We've kind of chit-chatted about it. Um, He hasn't given me a full, complete answer on what he's planning to do after I step down. But whether he stays with the company or he steps down, I support him 100%. Um, initially, because if I step down, he's the COO, so by right, he's next in line to become the new CEO, and he's graciously declined. Um, he just wasn't interested in, in, in being that heavily involved with the business aspect of things. So next year, I will be stepping down as CEO. As soon as I sign a contract with someone new, uh, I, I hope that they'll bring fresh ideas a new way to do business next year you're going to see a lot of transitioning not only with me stepping down but we're bringing in a whole new staff we again are looking at this new new slogan if you will the new blood new ideas and it it doesn't stop with me it doesn't stop with me walking away and bringing someone in we want to make a transition for the whole company we want it fresh we want it new and in doing so we've got to bring new talent into the company not only creative talent but you know executive management talent as well one of the people that will be staying behind I've decided that they will stay is my sister Rebecca C. Lofgren will continue to be chief creative officer. Um, I don't think it's a wise move for me to take her out of that position. Uh, she has wonderful ideas. The The revamp of the world of myth was her idea. She wanted to change it and, and make it more today. Uh, for her being so young... She has a different insight to people than I do. <clears throat> and I wanted her to stay in that position and help the company grow creatively. There's going to be a lot of stuff going on next year um, internally as far as management and staff. But there's really not going to be a whole bunch of new stuff, new product-wise. One of the things that I, I decided on is we have all this content readily available for some type of alteration. You know, we don't have to go out and try to find new content. So we're focusing on the content that we have, the contracts that we have with these authors, and try to bring it into the new 
front with new mediums. Another thing is, and I, I mentioned this, I believe, last podcast, is really getting the comic books revised, get back to the basics. And one of the reasons also kind of behind me wanting to step down is I want to get back into writing. And as a CEO, there's just no time. I'm so busy with business stuff there's really not much time for me to be creative and that's what my soul really wants at this point is to be creative so one of the things that I want is I want to get back to writing comic books and I know I mentioned Mark Jeffries um, and I hope he's doing well I just found out a couple days ago that he was involved in an automobile accident and I I wish him a speedy recovery Um, he's going to come in he's going to run Mythwork Comics and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write again I'm going to try to write new comic book material so I guess there will be some new content um, coming from there because not only will I do the writing but we also have to reconnect with the people that we've worked with in the past as far as like uh, you know the the writer, not the writers, but the the letters and the inkers and the colorists and the artists. You know we have to get back in contact with those people. You know so we can get everything back into operation. So everything's gonna change. Everything will change by the the beginning of 2014. It's not gonna be like it is today. Well, hopefully it won't. It'll be something new. It'll be fresh and ready for the future okay I'm stepping off my soapbox Um, let me see let me pull up some emails here because there's always people asking me some type of question so let me see if I can find a good one and we'll, we'll start answering some questions let's see what I can find as I'm looking around here for a question I just came across a little post-it note And it said that I would explain what had happened in 2010 when I I sold the company to Alan Russo. So I think I'm going to go that route. Um, I'm going to explain that. And then if we have time, then I will get back to the questions. Uh, Because I guess I did promise last episode that I would explain things. But before we get started... I need to say that we are now welcomed by the Zoe and the Jezelman, Ms. Zoe Montoya. So if you hear intermittent sucking sounds, that would be Miss Montoya as she is devouring this bottle. Her mom had to uh, have oral surgery today, so it's just her and I in the house. So welcome Miss Zoe. Okay, so let's get to the business of things. Uh, Why did I sell the company to Alan Russo? It starts back in 2008. Um, Stock market crashed. A lot of people lost money. I lost money. Business lost money. Um, But interesting enough, I I kind of had a contingency plan. I always had like a backup kind of idea for everything I do. Um, I had money set aside, not in a bank, it was just here, it was cash, and 
what I did is I took that money and I reinvested it into the company. It was like seven or eight. Uh, it was a good sum of money. And we continued business as normal. We didn't really look at what was happening around us, you know, financial system. We were so caught up in what we were doing. Um, that year, 2008, was a good year product-wise. We we only put out one product, and that was the Yotnum One-Shot. And it for a couple years to follow, that was the best-selling product we had ever done. We made a big return. Um, and what we were doing afterwards is we were investing a lot of cash into redeveloping the comics division of the, the company. Um, at the time, it was myself, I was the, the chairman and the publisher, and Mario Martinez was the president. No, 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 I got that wrong. I was president. No, I wasn't even a president. I was just the publisher, I think. Publisher and CEO. Mario was uh, the chairman and president of the company. And we both agreed that because the comic brand did so well just on one comic book that we needed to invest uh, you know, large sums of money to, to bring that division back up. Now we shoot ahead and when the stock market crashed in October of 2008, uh, like I said, it really didn't hurt us too much on a financial basis because I went back in and I had money set aside and I reinvested it into the company and I didn't really think much of it. Um, at the time, Terry was, Terry Shear, he wasn't doing too well with his cancer, so he decided that he was going to step down from Herotica, you know, take a break from things. And uh, we felt that by canceling Herotica altogether, we would compensate the money that was lost in the market. Uh, you know, because we, we invest money on a monthly basis to run Herotica. We still do. It's it's something that we put in, but we really don't get back, you know, in return. It's, it's a free product. So we felt that if we did that to Herotica, we canceled Herotica, and all that money that was being spent on Herotica would go back back into the company and that would save us from the money that was being lost from the the stock market falling out which essentially at first did work um you know we we had the money we were okay uh other than losing an online magazine we really didn't feel the effects right away um you know, we were still moving along business as normal. And I think that might have been, you know, something that was not the smartest of ideas. A lot of people were cutting back. And businesses, big businesses, uh, other than going out of business, were, were cutting back. But for us, other than the canceling of Herotica, we moved along like nothing was was wrong um, and I now that I'm really sitting here reflecting back on it that was indeed you know a big mistake we we should have gone into survival mode at that very point but we didn't 
we invested in product and procedure. You know, we were expanding the comic books. Um, you know, Mario came up with two comic book ideas. I gave him the green light. He put them in the forefront, and we were investing time and money in, in developing those comic books plus the comic books that I had created. And we were just throwing hand over fist with money when we should have been saving. And then it was um, during that time we, we move into the 2009 year and we decide that we're going to produce a book. Um, I wanted to do a children's book and Sadie Burbank, as Sadie Burbank, uh, her good friend Kelly DeToro had written a, a children's book and it was about autism. Well, it wasn't just about autism. It was... Uh, autism was incorporated into it and if anybody knows me I, I'm a very big advocate of, of autism um, Jaden my son my oldest son he he has autism he's what they call a functioning autistic and so through most of his life you know I've, I've been a big advocate of, of helping you know autism foundations and and doing what I can so when it was presented to me and I read the book, I, I thought it was a no-brainer. I thought it was a very good book. It was well written for you know the age group that she wanted to target. And so I gave it a green light. Terry agreed that he was feeling well enough to, to handle a, a small project like a children's book because it's, it's nothing in comparison to the other stuff that we've produced and made. Um, you know, so he he was on board. He was going to do the editing for the book. And the beginning of April of 2009, we produced um, Kelly DeToro's book, Mysterious Journey. We thought we were going to get a lot of backing from the autism community, um, you know, special needs community because we were also donating money to to different uh, charities that had to do with autism. Now, we just spent a grip of cash to produce this book, you know, and to pay the editor and, and everything else, you know, distributor and the printer. It was costly. It was costly. And because, you know, the stock market crashed just you know, some months beforehand, was it six months beforehand, um, inflation started to begin and they raised their prices. So it was, it was costly for us more so than normal, but we went ahead and we forked out the cash and we produced, uh, Kelly DeToro's book. Now, mind you, let me jump back again. As we're doing this, we're still investing in comics. We've got a lineup of six comics. We thought it was ready to go. We thought we were completely fine financially, okay? So, at that point, the Kelly DeToro book comes out, and we don't sell that many books. Um, one of the big lessons learned was that, um, you know, our followers are not kid book friendly, 
and that was something that we had to address later, you know, on. Uh, and, you know, in fact, that's why we haven't produced no more children's books is because we're still initiating that level into the children's book community. And it was just, it wasn't that well. You know, it, it didn't go over well. And it was very upsetting to me. I remember, um, you know, because we invested, even though it was an easy book um, to produce, it still cost us as if we produced, um, actually it cost us more to produce that kid's book than it did The Greenhouse Murders. Uh, and The Greenhouse Murders is a big, thick novel. You know, so... But I was, I was looking for Return, and at first we wanted to, to place it out there for X amount of money, and I know that we settled at kind of a, a low-end price, so we our profit wasn't that much. So what we did bring in, we didn't turn profit, you know, overall profit, because we spent more than what we brought back. And, you know, we were trying to figure out ways to do things, and yet it still didn't dawn us that we were starting to turn that, that line of financial disaster. You know, we still ran the business as if, you know, the market and the economy were perfectly fine. Uh, we still had, you know, money in the bank. Uh, we were still investing in the comics. We had just invested into this new book. Um, and one of the things that I did that I, I, I don't, I don't know why. I don't know why I was so blinded by not seeing what was happening around us because maybe it wasn't directly affecting me at the time. But we decided that we were going to take the world of myth off the line offline internet I mean and we were going to come out with what is called the 2M magazine which was kind of the older brother to the world of myth uh, 2M magazine was going to have you know stories and poetry in it but it wasn't just that it was a real ongoing magazine I know that we were going to have like book reviews movie reviews comic book reviews sports reviews, health and fitness, it was, it was just going to be, you know, essentially the way it was being marketed is, is it was the Walmart of all books, you know, it had something for everybody, and so other than financing the comics development, financing the comic books, or not the comic books, but financing the comic books, financing the kids book, now we're financing the 2M magazine, and we're and we're we're pumping on all this cash. You know, we paid the writers, we paid the editors for for the magazine, and by the time we finished with all the articles, you know, we were we were a couple grand into the project. You know, we we had spent a lot of money, and when we finally got everything together, we just we were getting ready to put it into print, you know, issue number one. And when we went to go take it into print, we realized we were out of money. We had literally spent all that money on developing the 2M magazine, the comic books, and the, the, the kids' book that didn't turn over. 
you know, we, we started making profit on the kids' book, I think, like, a year, year and a half later. You know, we finally pushed that that point of making the money back. It took that long to, to make the money back on that project. So in, in May, we sat down, and I was stressing. I was like, how how are we going to run this business without no money? Because we had become so used to having a, a bountiful coffer that we would do what we needed when we wanted to do it but now that was different so in May we sat down and we started what was called the restructure plan we tried to come together with an idea how to fix the company so the board of directors got together that night and we sat and we were thinking how are we going to get things back in order because you know, really, reality had hit us by that time, and we had no money to even work on any of the projects. And I remember it was Mario Martinez at the time. He he came up with a very simple suggestion, and eventually it would come out. You know, that was his plan, and it would it would work over you know two year time period. But he he said that we would have to shut everything down from the comics to the online magazines to the pictures everything shut everything down keep publications going and within time we would be able to open things up again so we did just that we we ended up shutting down the 2M magazine because simply we just didn't have the money to do it and then we shut down the comics, which was a very hard thing because we spent lots of money developing each comic book. Um, and that's kind of where the split with uh, then Dark Myth Comics and Royalty Comics is because Mario had put so much time and effort into developing the titles that he had created. You know, he didn't want to just have it disappear. So he and his wife went out and started Royalty Comics, and we we completely walked away from, from the comic book business altogether. So by that time, he also told me that he would not be coming back as the, the company's chairman and president. Um, you know, he, he did what was necessary. He laid down a plan, and it came out very good in the end. Uh, so, uh, towards Christmas 2009, uh, we promoted Terry to Terry D. Shearer to president, and he took over the reins from there. And as we, we started into the end of 2009, beginning of 2010, uh, we were able to get enough investing together to, to try another book, and we decided that we were going to try our hand with Sarah St. John and she had put together a book of her short stories over the past few years called Black Hearts Red Blood Dreams. So we decided that we were going to go ahead and publish that. Even if it was just one publication that year, we went ahead and we were going to put all our chips on that book. And so around, I want to say, March or April of 2010, that book came out. And it did well. It, it for the time in the economy, it did well. Um, if, if you would have 
matched against the numbers, say it came out in 2008 or even 2009, the numbers wouldn't have been consistent and it would, would have not been considered a, a good seller. But for the economy and for everybody's situation financially all over the world, we, we considered the low numbers good. It was a good run. I mean, we still sold copies, and that was the important part. And that got us to stay afloat for a little bit longer. So we, we kind of go into marketing mode afterwards. And marketing mode is, you know, we go out and we try to sell as many books as possible just to, to try to bring in more revenue, put, put aside into the coffer, and, you know, have enough money to go into the next project. So just when things started looking like it's going to get better, March, April, May, we, we seen improvement. We started making more money. We started selling a little bit more books. Again, still not the equivalent to what we did back in 2008, 2009, but we're still selling books. So then things kind of shifted once again once we got to June. June was when we found out that Terry Deshear was involved with a rollover car accident. Um, he had moved from California, Southern California, to California. Uh, southern Idaho and he we're still not 100% sure but we think we, he might have uh, passed out behind the wheel because he is a, a severe diabetic and he wasn't eating properly and I think he blacked out and he flipped his car, he punctured his lungs, broke his ribs and cracked his sternum he, he really did a number on himself and um, that hurt us as a company so we, we actually stopped production for a while uh, you know as far as trying to sell more books and whatnot I went out there I checked on him uh, you know he, he was pretty beat up but he was gonna be okay and by the time we got back to California after uh, going out to Idaho and we stopped in Nevada for a few weeks I came back home and, and found out personally that my financial situation had taken a grave turn. Uh, I was very used to making a certain amount of money, living a certain lifestyle, you know, having certain things. And because of the economy and people trying to cut back and, and money was becoming scarce and inflation was starting to happen, my own per financial, personal financial stability was falling apart. Um, about that time, Alan Russo had hired me to screenwrite a, a play, well not a play, but a movie called Typhius for his New Blood Films movie production studios. So I was doing that and I had been in contact with him on a regular basis, you know, daily basis, you know, giving him shoots of, okay, this is what this scene is going to be. I'd write it up, send it to him, he'd approve it, or tell me, you know, I need to rewrite something or whatnot. So I was on a regular talking basis with Russo over that time span. And I was telling him that my my financial stability wasn't there, and I needed to figure out a way to make some money and 
he asked me, well, how was the company doing? And I recall, you know, I told him that we had just put out the, the one book and that kept it afloat and because Terry had gone into the hospital at this point, I think he was still in ICU trying to recover from the car accident. So nothing new was happening. It was just kind of sitting there dormant. And he, Russo, came to me and he told me, well, actually, he, he gave me an offer. And it was $25,000 to buy the company. What he would do, no, it was $24,000. 24, $25,000. Um, what he would do is he would pay me $2,000 a month for the next like 24, 25 months. And I was cool with that. So I ended up selling the business to him with hopes of one day buying it back. Unfortunately, it would come a lot quicker because though he told me that he was in a good financial situation, you know, he was making a movie, he was in pre-productions and things looked good for him. Uh, he was on the cusp of financial ruins himself. You know, one wrong move would pretty much end it. And that's pretty much what happened with him is he did make one wrong move and it just kind of collapsed on him. And I got the company back by... Officially, it was January of 2011 by the time we had signed the papers and got everything back in order and everything was back in my name. So the initial reason why I sold the company was simply just because I, I didn't think I could afford to keep it running anymore. And Russo seemed like he was the, the, the type of person that had the financial stability. You know, he was the cat that would be able to keep it afloat he was the cat that would keep it afloat, you know, while this recession was happening. And ultimately, that's why I sold the company. Again, the, you know, the company did come back by January 11, and, and we just took off. Uh, last year was very, very good for us. This year has actually been fairly well for us as well, even though we've only put out one product. But we've, we've put out a lot of new stuff as well. You know, shirts, mugs, stickers, that kind of stuff. So that's it. I mean, that's that's why I sold the company. And now I'm looking at the timer and I realize that I've been babbling for almost an hour and it is time to go. I want to thank each and every one of you for sitting around listening to me for, like I said, an hour. Uh, come back next week and, and we'll, we'll dive into something new. We'll, we'll figure out. Maybe I'll talk about what happens next after I get the company back. I'm David K. Montoya, and come back with me next week as we continue to seek the history old question, and that is, who's the boss? Did you like that lesson? I am all learned up. I think I'm kind of learned up too. Yeah? My brain's full. Can I go home? No. Damn it. We've still got two more shows to do. Oh, yes. Well, let's see if we can't do this one. This is, uh... One in Burbank. Okay. And we're going way back again. December of 2012, the kids are all right. And this one, Sadie and Dave debate over the forthcoming projects of children's books to be released by M Kids Press. Ah. See, I did not know Dave had an M Kids Press. No. I'm going to have to approach him about that. Oh, look at that. See, I adjust it so it drops more. I know. Oh, I'm throwing this equipment out. Maybe time for a new mixer. 
Maybe I can barely hear you. What? Oh, there you are. Okay. <laughs> Everybody home going, shut up, you two. Just play the episode. <laughs> all right, let's get to the episode. Yeah. This is When in Burbank number two. The kids are all right. All right. Welcome to When in Burbank. I'm Dave Montoya. And I'm S. Sadie Burbank. Before we get started, uh, Sadie wanted to make a commentary note on the subject that she said last podcast. So I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to her and let her take it away. Thanks, David. Uh, I just want to uh, make a note of apology for being less than politically correct. Last podcast, when I was talking, uh, telling a story about a trip I made to Los Angeles with a friend and went into a bar where an African-American greeted us with a, a comment that we'd be better off not staying in the room as it was filled with African-Americans, and we, of course, were not. And not necessarily of course, but we were not. Um, I referred to him as black. I referred to the people in the room as black, and I referred to the neighborhood as black. And I apologize for that. It was less than PC of me. Um, and my mind was elsewhere at the time when I made that comment. I had just finished talking about an association I had with Black Panthers, and frankly, that was kind of where my head was. So... Enough said on the subject. Just want you to know, I didn't mean it the way it came out. Well, listening to it, and, and you know, I've been working on the editing. For the story that you were telling, I think it was appropriate. Good. I hope that it was taken in that light, because it was really, you know, it was just like I said it. That's all. It wasn't, there was no criminal intent. <laughs> Well, we're back after a week off. I thought I was going to die last week, and, and we missed uh, podcasting. Uh, while I was on my deathbed, you and your husband Ernie went to um, Las Vegas. How did that come out? How well, we, we, we expressed extreme sympathy for you, as you can tell, <laughs> by leaving the state and going and having a lot of fun while you were barfing up <laughs> every, everything but the kitchen sink, and probably that. Um, how'd it go? Gee. It Are you went... rich or millions? <laughs> well, uh, we came home with money, and in this part of the country, we call that winning. Yes. Uh, we did not come home with enough money that Ernie can retire. As a matter of fact, we didn't even come home with enough money to brag about. <laughs> but, uh, like I said, when you come home with some money, you don't have to sell the car to get gas to come home or anything like that. Then that's called winning. I played most of the time that I played, and by play I mean uh, the slots, video poker, stuff like that. Um, most of the time I played on their money, which is also called winning. Um, as a matter of fact, for, let's see, the first evening, we got there Sunday, and the first evening and the next morning and most of the afternoon I played on the 300 bucks that I started out with on Sunday afternoon I just kept recycling it um, and so like I said that's playing on their money and um, and that's a way of winning you know if I'm using somebody else's money I'm winning and it was it was like it always is there for us we we like it we have fun we relax my ears are still ringing 
and will for weeks to come. The noise of the machines right. is deafening, um, but I'm willing to make that sacrifice. How many days were you there? Uh, let's see. We got there Sunday mid 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 afternoon, and left Wednesday morning. So three nights and as many days. Well, everybody seems like they're going to Vegas. Um, you and Ernie went to Vegas um, yesterday. My sister and her boyfriend went to Vegas. Um, you guys are going soon. I'm not going. Oh, you're not. I'm not going to oh. go. I'm going to stay behind with the kids. Oh. Lacey and my mom are going to go to Vegas oh, next week. What a good husband you are. <laughs> it, yeah. <laughs> you can't deny it. Go ahead. Um, so there's a lot of activity going on in Vegas. Um, everybody's kind of jazzed up about the coming holidays as well. What are you going to do for Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving, our son is coming up. One of our sons is coming up. The other May, we, that he's being iffy about it at this point. Um, and we're just going to cook a turkey and uh, eat it. Pretty much that's... And it's going to be on Saturday because Ernie's working. And actually, I found out today he's working day shift both days. Oh, really? Yeah. So that's kind of cool, though, because he'll be home in the evenings. Evening to enjoy and it. can visit with Bob and we'll have good fun and he can help cook you know, the days of me slaving over a hot stove for eight hours at a stretch uh, for anything are gone I, I, I don't have that in me anymore that's what Lacey has looked forward to yeah yeah good for well shit she, I'm, she's 40 years younger than I am she can get away <laughs> with it I can't and I don't try anymore I did last year and last year was the last time I said I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore it's it's ridiculous, and I'm not going to do it. So I'm not. Bob's going to help cook. He's he's a great sous chef, and uh, he'll do a fine job. Ernie can cook up a storm. I don't have to have it all be from me. Plus, I got some mashed potatoes from Costco, and I don't have to do anything to them but warm them up. I'm home free. Well, I may be a good husband, but I suck at cooking. <laughs> Well, most husbands do, actually. I'm very fortunate that Ernie can cook. He had to cook for himself when he was in college. and Plus, he enjoys cooking. He is a big fan of the cooking shows on television. He loves to watch um, anybody cook. He likes to watch anybody eat. He likes to watch that guy that eats too much all the time. Rich somebody. Oh, Richmond. Adam Richmond. Yeah, yeah. him. He's funny, and he's very cute to watch. Uh, how he puts it away, I'll never know. Um, Men versus food. That I was trying yeah, to think of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He likes to watch that show. I do too. Uh, he likes to read cookbooks. He likes to read books about cooking. He subscribes to food and wine and stuff like that. Ernie's a little strange bird in that sense of the word. He's not a typical guy in that sense. He he likes uh, a variety of things. Among them, he likes food and cooking and experimenting with food and wines and things like that well with Lacey and I we've been together since 1995 and I remember she was doing something I put pizzas in the oven you know just frozen pizzas mm -hmm. I don't know how I follow I'm the type of person you give me instructions I will follow the instructions mm -hmm. to T 
you know, I, I, I don't guess, when it comes to that point, I don't have the common sense to say, okay, well, let me just peek on it. <laughs> if it says leave it in there for three minutes, I leave it in there for three minutes exactly. And when I went to go get the pizzas out of the oven, it was like when I opened the oven, all this black smoke kind of came out. And from that point on, when it comes to food and cooking, my nickname is Chef Boyardee. <laughs> so Lacey has, and as you can tell, Lacey <laughs> has done a, a wonderful job cooking and, and feeding me. She's a good me. cook. She's a good cook. Yeah. So um, what have you been doing uh, as far as the writing? Have you, have you been doing any writing? or? Well, I've been kind of working on Convict off and on. I've been, I've really been stumped. I put out a, a request on Facebook uh, because you remember when we talked about having to describe my characters mm -hmm. to the T, yes. literally. Was and I made that list of yes. characteristics, and then I started trying to fill it in. Well, when I got to my second character that I wanted to describe, charisma, uh, <laughs> I realized that I might be giving her an odd face with the descriptions I was giving of her forehead, her chin, her nose, and things like that. And I was just sort of arbitrarily picking these individual items, picking like a high forehead or a, a cute turned up nose or a square chin or a pointy chin or whatever without thinking how they would look Together. together and so it it made me want one of those I know you've seen them in the movies I have and cop shows where they have uh, a way of helping a police artists draw a sketch of a suspect right and they have these books that are cut in thirds okay and the top third is like from the eyebrows up and the middle third is the nose and the eyes, eyes. Oh. and then the bottom third is the mouth and chin, and they th they thumb through these various because the the witness will say, well, he had kind of a, a low forehead, you know, so they'll thumb through and get a low forehead, and they'll start with that, you know, and then they'll say, well, his nose was real big, you know, so they'll go through and they'll find a big nose and then put that with the low forehead, and then they get the chin, and then they hold it up and they go, that's him, you know, well. At the same time, you get a face that has, um, this is going to sound funny, but no matter how funny the face looks, it has appropriate proportions right. of those features. And without an aid like that, I'm finding it extremely difficult to give a verbal description of a person's face. It's very hard for me. I, I don't know why I'm having this mental issue with it, but I am. So I need one of those books. If anybody has any idea what they're called, I've Googled it. I've done everything I can to find one. I've talked to people who say, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about, but I don't know where they get them. If anybody knows where, or if there are police officers listening who have one that want to help me, please let me know where I could get one, because I really need one badly. Um, while you were talking, another thing that popped in my head is what we can do is we can take just the face characteristics of what you've written for, uh, who was it? Charisma. Charisma. Uh -huh. We could put it on the forum because, you know, the forum's launched. 
and we can put what you've written about the face, we can just put that much on the forum, and we can get the feedback from the people on the forum. Would that help you? Uh, yeah, I guess it would. The forum being... The forum is where, like, on our website, you know, you can go to uh, Win in Burbank, and then at the very bottom it says comment. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, that, that might help. What I, what I wound up doing was I did find um, a website that actually had some pictures. Um, I left it home tonight, but uh, it has... It has pictures of these various things, like foreheads and eyes and chins and noses and stuff. And so I thought, well, I, at first I thought, well, I'll, I'll print out like a dozen of these things and chop them all up and try to make my own little book. Oh, that became ridic <laughs> ridiculous before I even completed the thought. But um, I thought, well, at least I can look at the foreheads. And I can sort of take the nose that I think goes with it and the chin that I think goes with it. And then I'll know whether I'm making her look as pretty as she does in my head or not. Right. You know, because that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to verbally draw what I see in my head. And that might be okay if I had any kind of artistic talent. But I have not. You know, I can't draw stick people even. So, I'm stuck. <laughs> So, yeah, maybe it would help if I told people, you know, well, she has a certain kind of hair and a certain kind of forehead and a certain kind of nose. And, you know, it's, it's Let's it's do hard. this. Let's do this. Let's have a contest. Let's okay. Let's do this. Well, for you guys listening, what we'll do is we're going to go and we're going to put up a uh, written description of this character. And what I want you guys, the listeners, to do is take the written description and draw it and whoever comes the closest or if Sadie says that's it you nailed it right on you know the head there'll be some type of compensation that's cool that's cool so what we'll do is after this recording um, once it gets you know put on the, the website and goes up to iTunes right. we'll put the, the written description and then they can go and they can put their artwork right there okay. on the forum. Okay, yeah, because I can tell them about her uh, her heritage and everything else that comprises what she probably looks like, you know, and like I said, I see her right. in my mind's eye just as clearly as anybody I know, which is kind of odd that I can do that, but I do, uh, but I can't get it out of my head and onto paper. Right. Verbally or in any other way. Well, we'll do this. It'll it's it's going to be our first Jazo Modcast Yay, contest. Contest with prizes, <laughs> a prize. We'll make it good. I promise. Maybe a free year subscription to premium downloads. I don't know. I'll think of something, but I'll I'll hook you guys up, and and whoever wins will get some some good swag. That sounds good. That sounds good, and it would be helpful to me, I guess. Well, what what. Uh, what are we going to get out of it? How, what am I going to get out of this now that I think about it? They're going to say, from your description, here's what I think she looks like, and mm -hmm. they're going to draw a photo of it, or a picture of it? Picture of her face, yes. Okay, and then what? Well, at that point, once we have a physical rendition, yeah. then for us, we would go and take that, instead of having to write a, a physical, 
we can go and, and when we get the artist, the artist and, and say, this is exactly what she looks like. Okay, that's fine for her. But I've got Riley and <laughs> Grandma and Grandpa and, uh, you know, a hundred other characters in this book. What am I going to do with them? You see my problem. Yeah. You see my problem. And and it's your fault because you're the one who told me I had to do this. <laughs> and I'm like, damn, I thought all I had to do was just describe the room and the people basically and what was going on. Now I got to be really like their eyelashes and their the color of eyes is easy. I can do that. But it's, it's basically it's the shape of the face that I'm having the most trouble with and I may be I may be trying to be too detailed with it I may not have to say the forehead shape and the cheekbone shape and the chin shape I might just be able to say she has an oval face and let it go at that right and if that's the case then the contest is off sorry folks and I'll just do that but you know well let's leave that up also to the people on the forum well, especially the illustrators who might be listening. Uh-huh. That's where I really would love to have some input is from illustrators who are who are not necessarily going to have instruction from me, but who are used to working from instruction, you know, from authors because I don't know what kind of stuff gets it for them. Right. You know. And, and you can find out whether it's overkill or not. Exactly, exactly. Because if I don't really have to go that far, heaven knows I don't want to. So. Okay, so this is what we'll do is the contest. We're going to leave the contest up. Okay. Um, because I would just love to see the drawings. Yeah, that would be kind of fun. And for the people that aren't interested in sitting down and drawing, um, if you're an artist, then give some feedback. Tell us, is these descriptions too much or is it too little or is it just right or what way can we modify it to make it work better for the artist yeah because I'm an author I'm not an illustrator I don't have the skill I don't have the knowledge I don't I don't have it I admit it I can write up a storm but I can't draw so I need help Speaking of drawing, I, I was thinking about this earlier today. Um, you know, I, I called you and we spoke a little mm-hmm. bit on the phone. Um, after I got off the phone, I, I wanted to talk more about your children's book. Mm-hmm. Talk about needing an illustrator. Boy. Um, yeah. Amongst everything, and, and the funny thing is, is it, it's so diverse, your writing, because from... The Red Hills book, to Convict Volumes, to The Orange Cat, which is the, the children's book, the writing style is so completely different because you write for the audience. Well, it has to be different. It's different stuff. I mean, Red Hills was a, a novel that was a true account of my experiences in Liberia in 1971. Convict Volumes is a total fantasy that you sort of instigated <laughs> with, gee, wouldn't it be fun if you did this and that with that little short story you're working on? Was that Scurry? Uh, yeah. It was Scurry. Yeah, it was Scurry, uh, which is about a freaky mouse, by the way. But anyhow, um, that got turned into, what did I tell you, Wade? I don't know, some 10 pounds of pages. It was huge. Yeah. <laughs> the convict volumes, like, on steroids. Literally, it was. it, uh, it is a volume. It's and totally, we're not, we're not totally. even talking about artwork. We're just talking oh, no. written volume. 
uh, well, yeah, there's some art. There's there's art direction in there for the scenes. Right. No, I meant physically. Oh, yeah. No, no, there's no pictures. Uh-uh. No, it's all words. Uh, I'm very wordy. Anyway, um, and then Orange Cat is a kid's book about the orange cat that used to live next door to us and come over and, and eat our birds and chase them and piss me off and our dog chased them and stuff like that. Well, it was written for kids. In fact, you read it to, to Jay when he yes. was about five years old, I think. Yeah. Um, and, cause, wow, has it been that long? Yeah, and because I, I wanted to get some feedback from a kid. Right. About it, and your reaction. Your, you said his reaction was he liked it. He was interested in the, in in the story, and you know what happened. And it's not terribly long. The whole idea behind Orange Cat was it, it's really written to three to five year old kids, um, maybe two year old if they're exceptionally bright, um, with using the the technique that happened a lot to me when I was a little kid reading books there were things that would get said that throughout this the book that were like hooks right musicians know what I'm talking about where they would repeat a certain hook throughout the story and the kids would catch on to that fairly quickly and repeat it themselves along with mom while she was reading, reading the, the story book, yeah. and in this case it's you do not live here, Orange Cat. Go home. And it's said repeatedly throughout the book at intervals. And that, because of the way it's written and what it's about, it had to be written different. I mean, I don't, I don't think I could write any story about anything and have it be written just like anything else I've ever written. I don't. I don't think any good author can. I've never, I've never read anybody's stories that I've read lots of their work right. that that were to me repetitious. Um, maybe um, what's the word I'm looking for? Maybe I would recognize a style, the writing style, right? Or uh, in some cases, recognize. Um, where the action was taking place, like a lot of King's work takes place back up in the Northeast. Up and, in Maine, yeah. yeah. And and you you come to expect that, but uh, that's where the repetition ends, and of course the story takes over and knocks you for a loop. And, and, and in that sense of the word, he writes differently everything he writes. Everybody that's really readable, to me anyhow, writes um, to the story. If that's the proper way to put it, yeah, I I would agree um, because I you know obviously I, I've written a book and I've written comic books and believe it or not I don't know if I've actually told you this I've sat down and I started writing a child's book I don't think you did mention that no um, if you did I forgot it <laughs> it was a collaboration between Jaden and I yeah um, because his favorite character is Iron Man. Yes, I know that. <laughs> anyway, his his favorite character is Iron Man, so I sat down and I drew up this character, and it was called Armor J. And what it was is it was Iron Man's costume, but I kind of bolted it up and did this and did that. And he's like, oh, dude, put this here, put that here, put lights here. Mm -hmm. And I, I finished it, and I put a lot of time and effort into it. And I looked at it, and I'm like, that's just really too good of, of material just to toss away. Yeah. 
So my imagination started kicking in. And what it is, is it's about this boy. And he's sitting in the classroom. And it's it's like five minutes to the end of, of school. And then he gets to go on summer vacation. And he's staring at the clock. But the hand's not moving. And then he realizes, somebody must have stole time. <laughs> and enter the story of Armor J and Zoe Machine... The case of the stolen time. That's cool. That's very cool. And Jay probably can give you a lot of input for the action. He's he's helped me a lot because yeah. I found out I'm I'm writing on a maybe a higher level of age wise mm-hmm. than than mm-hmm. the orange cat. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm actually having difficult difficulty mm-hmm. in in putting together the story because you can't put a lot of drama. Well, you, you can. You can't put drama, you know, the type of drama that I'm used to putting into stories. But you've got to make it entertaining. You can't put that much level of violence as I would do in a comic book. But you still got to make it entertaining. Don't be too sure. Look at Monster House. I've never seen it. Oh, Monster House is is for kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ages probably seven, eight minimum. Okay. I mean, at the low end, on up, okay. Um, and it's about the house across the street from this kid, and, and it eats people. Kid. Oh, really? Yeah. It's uh, just, a, it, it, there's no visible violence necessarily, but um, it's it's pretty spooky. You know, even, you know, for adults, you can kind of, if you let yourself relax and get, get into, into it, it, you uh. know, you can, you can kind of go, this is pretty scary stuff. You know, a house that eats kids. And uh, I forget, because I haven't watched it for a while, but it's coming up uh, right around Thanksgiving. I've been watching promos. It's going to be either that or it came up around Halloween. I lost track. Um, but it's out. I have it. I have the DVD. Anybody oh, okay. can rent it or get it or whatever. Um, and it's, it's, it's a fun watch. It really is. And it's... You, you probably can do more with the age you're writing to in, in terms of what you're talking about, then you realize you can. And you've got a perfect sounding board. Right. All you have to do is sit him down and say, listen to this and see what you think. You know, and he'll tell you. He likes the fact that it's it's essentially him. Yeah, of he, course he does. He likes the, the idea of him and his sister going on this adventure. Of course he does. So if it does well, um, because... What we learned, and I, I think I was talking about this on Who's the Boss, is we put out Kelly's book, but we really didn't, and we kind of tested the market just a mm-hmm. little bit, mm-hmm. but not in appropriate manner because it was a new age group. You know, we were mm-hmm. we were set for our books, and I think this time we're going to fill out you know more of an appropriate audience to find exactly who we're going to pinpoint not such a widespread right. but like you know 10 to 13 a 3 year right. you know right. and, and find it that way right. so if um if if the book sells then i would like to actually do more you could easily do more uh on with the same character and different themes you know if he if he figures out, for example, in, in your story, if he figures out who or how time got stolen, he might be able to figure out how to do it for himself and use it whenever he wants, like when he goes back to school or something. 
That's kind of neat. Yeah, it could be. It could be fun. For the purposes of the listeners who may not know, you probably want to identify Kelly in her book. Oh, that's true. Um, Kelly DeToro uh, is a friend of Sadie Burbank's. Um, Good friend. Back in 2008, it was towards the end of 2008, um, I was looking at publishing a new type of genre. Um, at the time, Dark Myth Production Studios or Dark Myth Publications, we published a lot of fantasy and, and a lot of horror stuff. I kind of wanted to get out of that. I opened up a new brand called M Kids Publications, and you you, you told me about mm-hmm. her, right? Yeah. Um, well, and- she had. Excuse me, I'll interrupt just briefly. She knew I was right. I think at that time I was working on um, the Orange Cat. Yes. And she had mentioned she had been toying with the idea of writing a book. She said there is a lot of stuff out there on the market for children with autism but she said there's not much out there for the siblings of children with autism and she felt that was an area that deserved addressing right and so she wanted to do something like that had toyed around with some of them she sent me a few pages uh email and i read them and and said i thought it was a great idea and that she should you know pursue it and i told her about you that I was pretty sure you'd be interested. And I think I even showed you the pages at that point. I read the first two chapters. Yeah. I remember reading the first two chapters. Um, and she gets you hooked right away with with the the story that's... Right. That the adventure that the kids are on. And, and the whole concept of on, autism, um, and I don't know if I've actually said this on air yet, but for the listeners, my, my son... Uh, Jaden is what they call a functioning autistic. He has autism. So I'm very pro-autism awareness. Mm-hmm. And when that came to me, I, I thought it was a great idea. When I read it, you know, I thought it was well-written. Um, I remember I was kind of like, oh, should I get a new editor? Because Terry D. Shearer, who is, you know, his nickname is the devil's favorite demon. <laughs> that should say it all. Um, I thought it might have been too kitty for him, you know, too mm. too soft. Uh-huh. And I was like, okay, well, let's just see what he thinks. And if he doesn't like it, then we'll find a new editor. And surprisingly enough, he enjoyed the story. Yeah, yeah it's got a great hook. It really has. And uh, and Kelly, by the way, uh, for information purposes, she is degreed. She has a master's in uh, children's, uh, actually, in I think she has a master's in a couple of different things, but among them she she taught uh, her, uh, hearing impaired children, she taught signing, uh, she has a master's in, in dealing with the problems of specifically children with autism and their families and so forth, and she'll kill me because I can't remember, and it's in her book, what her actual degree is, but I'm sure she'll understand. Um, in any case, uh, she's well-educated in the field and experienced in the field. She worked in Florida for a number of years for the state there, uh, working with families of children with autism, uh, also children, uh, families of children who are hearing impaired um, and have other social problems as well. So she knows a little bit about her subject. Right. Just Maybe just a <laughs> skosh. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> Um, and also, I do know that she's working on a sequel. Yes. Which yes. I, I'm hoping that, you know, she comes back my way. 
because I want I to publish so. the book. I hope so. I don't know. I haven't spoken with her about it specifically, and I was just on the phone with her a couple of weeks ago. We were on the phone catching up. We hadn't spent time on the phone in probably a year, and so you can well imagine how long that went between right. her and then her husband, Frank, who is like a second son or third son to us. Um, so we didn't actually get into that specifically, but... Um, I'm I'm sure she's interested in in pursuing. She's got to be. Why wouldn't she be? Right. Well, if Kelly, if you're listening, I just want to throw out a couple things. One, we have a new distributor. Um, I don't want to say it on air, but it's a very big distributor. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we have a very big printer. Yes. So the deal that I gave you last time would not be in comparison to how good of a deal I could give you now. And I want to do your book. In every sense of the word. Yes. Production time, lead time, production quality, production costs, production everything. So if you're hearing this, contact Sadie. Uh, because my emails changed, I no longer have the darkmythproduction.com email address because now we're MythWorks. But email Sadie, and then Sadie will give you my email, and then we can start working out a, a new plan. Sounds good. So coming back around to your book, The Orange Cat, yeah. um, I know that it was kind of inspired of a, a true story. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give us a little insight on the story? Yeah, the orange cat from next door kept coming over and he'd sit under my Joshua. We have a Joshua tree in our front yard, big Joshua tree. If you don't know what they are, people from Maine and Missouri and whatever, just Google it, Joshua tree, and you'll see all sorts of pictures. That or the YouTube cover. Oh, well, there you go. Um, In any case, we have one, several actually on our property, but we have one big one in our front yard. And it provides a lot of shade in the summertime. And this cat would come over and sit in the shade of the Joshua tree. And even though he was orange, he wasn't terribly visible. And at the time, Ernie was, I don't know why, he decided he needed to feed the birds. I mean, criminy. We had all sorts of seed-bearing plants in our yard. <laughs> and... and uh, uh, the usual accompaniment of aphids and ants and bugs of all sorts. Plenty of things for birds to eat. But he decided it was important to feed the birds. So we bought wild bird feed and he would throw it out and the birds would come by flocks and they would eat. And the cat figured it out. And so I looked out the kitchen window one day and saw this cat sitting there in the shade of the Joshua tree and he was if you've ever watched a cat watch a bird, you know what he was doing. He was sitting there alert and in a crouched, hunched sort of position with his tail going slowly back and forth from side to side. And the next thing you know, pshoom, he pounced on this bird and grabbed it and made off with it to eat. And it pissed me off. I, so I yelled at him. I said, you don't live here, orange cat. Go home. And it sort of just stuck with me. And the damn cat kept... He got smart. Um, we have 
these other plants in our yard that are called gazanias. They're a perennial. Um, they survive the harshest of winters and the even harsher summers that we have in the high desert. Um, and they, in the spring, they send out green shoots and things. And then the flowers they send out are sort of daisy-like, um, for want of a more accurate term. And they're mostly orange. And they have like little dark orange centers, like a daisy would. And they're pretty. But they, they grow in sort of a mound. Oddly enough, they kind of grow in a mound that's shaped like the cat was. And the cat figured out that he could snuggle in amongst the gazanias and be less noticeable than he was just in the shady parts underneath the Joshua tree. He figured out how to camouflage himself. Yeah, really well. And so that he hid himself from me that way for a, quite a bit of time um, until I happened to catch him again when I was out in the yard doing yard work. Um, I caught him pouncing again on another bird, you know, and dragging it out the poor birds, flapping and squawking and whatnot. Uh, and again, I yelled at him, you don't live here, orange cat, go home. And he, he just, uh, our yard attracts cats. It just does. I don't know why. I, we had a dog at the time, little white fluffy dog. He would bark at him and, you know, echo my sentiments about his being there and catching birds and whatnot. I didn't impress the cat at all. Because, you know, cats are hard to impress. Um, anyhow, that's kind of... I don't know. I guess because I kept yelling at him, you don't live here anymore, or you don't live here, period, orange cat, go home. It just sort of stuck that that would be a funny thing to have in a kid's book because kids like little kids, when you're reading a book, they like to pretend they're reading. They can't but they know the words because they've heard the thing so many times, they've memorized it, and so they know when it's coming and then they can yell out, you don't live here, orange cat, go home. And it just seemed like it would be fun for little kids. Now, when, when you were writing that, because you know I mentioned mm -hmm. it was harder for me to write a children's book mm -hmm. than anything else, mm -hmm. when you wrote that to everything else that you've written, mm -hmm. was it harder for you to write or was it easy or... Actually, I guess it was kind of easy because um, the verbiage had to be cut way down because you know you don't uh, you don't need to say that much for uh, a little kid to get the point. Right. You don't really need to say that much for a big kid to get the point either. But um, I don't know. It just seemed like extra words would have gone un recognized with a little kid. They start so, turning yeah. it out. So I, I sort of dumbed it down, as, as some people would say. Uh, I mean, I didn't make it in baby talk or anything, but um, I just kept it straight and simple. And I sort of, in my mind, while I was writing it, I kept seeing the words interspersed on the page amongst the, the pictures of the yard and the Joshua tree and the cat and the gazanias and the dog and me and my husband out in the yard and stuff like that. Uh, very similarly to some of the children's books, can I say whose? Yeah. Um, that Winnie the Pooh is, is an example. Winnie the Pooh books are great for that. They have uh, little pictures here and there throughout the page and then the story in clumps of, of sentences 
scattered and sometimes the words dribble down on the pages and it's it's beautifully written it's very clever I like that style and so I kind of wanted to imitate uh, that kind of a style in my mind's eye anyhow while I was writing it so I kept the the story wording to uh, a level that would support that style now other than Orange Cat was there I'm, I'm thinking there was another children's yeah there's a couple of actually uh, I wrote Brand New Puppy that's yes that's Brand New Puppy was uh, another true I story I cried when I wrote Brand New Puppy I really did it was about yeah it was a true story it was about um, us getting Riley the, the dog I talk about in an orange cat he was a Bichon we got him when he was a baby, about the size of two fists put together. Um, pure white, all fluff. <laughs> Smelled just like a puppy does. Oh, it was so cool. Um, and it was about picking him out from the litter and bringing him home and uh, his life, starting his life with us. And... He, he was a very special dog. We had him for 13 years, and I really kind of hated to see him go. But uh, it was his time, so. I know we're focusing a lot on, on the children's literature today, uh, just because we focused so much on the Red Hills last time. Mm -hmm. what, is, what do you want to see of yours in print next? Anything. <laughs> not picky. Anything. I'm not picky. I'd love to see Convict in print, but God, I don't think it's ever going to make it to the printer. Um, it seems like I have so much work to do. I had start, as you know, I had started reworking it um, because I had, jeez, uh, I have, I was writing it in sort of a frenzy there for a while, and I kind of lost track of all the rules of graphic novel writing and all of that. So I had to go back and and rework. Uh, that and I started out with uh, Convict the Legacy. Yes. Okay, well, <laughs> that wound up to be a book size of its own. And I, I realized about two thirds of the way through this thing that I was actually just retelling the whole Convict volumes. And so I, I, I stopped. And I, and I think I told you I have to, I can't do the Legacy. At the beginning, of the, the legacy actually was intended to take the place of a prologue. Right. Okay. Uh, where in a prologue is only a couple of three pages long, you know, and you tell a little bit about what's going on, what to expect, and boom, you're into the book. Well, this was not a prologue, and the, the, it turned into the legacy because I kind of wanted to give some background to sort of launch where this was all coming from. And I wound up, like I said, just practically telling the whole thing. So I stopped, and that's about the time that I found out I was going to have to do all the detailed descriptions of the characters, or the main characters anyway, in the whole thing. And so I started working on that, and then I ran into a brick wall with that. And so I haven't done anything on Convict now. So I don't think it's... <laughs> I don't know how long it's going to take me to actually... Trim that thing down to something of a reasonable um, size to at least get it started. I would like to get it started. I'd like to see a volume or two in print. I'd like to see that. I really would. And it's all there at home on my kitchen table. A stack of it. I swear to God, how, how high are my hands apart? 
A foot? At least a foot, uh-huh. yeah. Um, but first things first. I have to do the characters first. So that's where I'm at. Uh, and I'll get them done. And then I'll go back to the rework that I've done so far on 1 and 2. I sent you chapter 1. Yes. And I think it was okay. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah I think um, And in the middle of chapter 2 was when you came up with that stuff. So now i got to go back and rework one again because it had a lot of description in there of the characters that I didn't, I won't have to put in if I do my homework first and get their descriptions done to start with. Right. And then so. also when you do that, you know, when you're 12 books in <laughs> or even the next issue in, mm. you don't have to re-describe. Right. Exactly. And I'm looking forward to that. It's going to save me a lot of work down the road. So once I get over this hump, as it were, uh, about faces and head shapes and whatnot, uh, get that part sorted out, then I, I'll feel like the road is leveled a little bit and I'll be able to go ahead. Uh, excuse me, but as far as my other work is concerned, um, you know, we, I started on that cookbook. Yes. Um, and I got stumped because I can't draw. I really need an illustrator with some skill. All right, folks. Uh, we're going to wrap it up for this week. So I'm David K. Montoya. And I'm S. Sadie Burbank. And remember, folks, what happens in Burbank ends up on a podcast. Exactly. Have a good night. <laughs> and now a word from our sponsors. Before 1971, a young S. Sadie Burbank could only imagine a simple American life as a loving wife and mother. That was her goal when she first married in 1959 at the age of 18, but with the wild social revolution of the 1960s, Burbank's idea of a perfect life would quickly change as she left behind her family to begin a new existence of her own. Her journey would find her on a plane headed toward her new lover, Steve, who was halfway across the world, waiting her arrival in a small bush camp in the country of Liberia. Once there, Sadie is greeted with a fascinating, strange world and plunges herself into the exotic land of the bush. But less than six months later, Sadie would realize all was not as it seemed, and Steve was not the man she fell in love with. Burbank found herself desperately seeking escape from the camp and her lover as she raced back to Robertsfield Airport, literally running for her life. Based on an unbelievably true story by S. Sadie Burbank, Red Hills, Green Vines, and Dried Monkey Meat for Dinner is a manuscript of Burbank's adventurous and deadly experience during a time filled with sex, drugs, and murder. Now available in paperback and hardback. For more information, log into www.redhills.us. Are you looking for a new book, comic, or apparel from your favorite MythWorks or independent creators? Then you're in the right place. Introducing the all-new redesigned MythMart store. Now bigger, badder, better. Sign up and become a member and receive 10 to 50% off on selected items. Get the all-new Terry D. Shearer's Bloody Hell t-shirt, or non-members can pick up one of our e-books for only $4.95. 
or go into the past and relive the 90s with MythWorks Comics Classics for $3.99. The new MythMart. Bigger, badder, better. Visit MythMart at www.mythworks.com slash MythMart or find us on Facebook for extra savings. Do you own a business or have an item you want to sling? Do you want a chance to reach potential customers? Do you want to make some extra cash? Then here's your chance. For $50, you can have a one to two minute commercial featured on each of our shows for an entire month. With six shows a week, that's only $2.09 per podcast. Plus, for an extra $10, your item will be placed into MythMart. So sit back and relax as they handle all stages of transactions. Contact our ad department at info at jazelmon.com. Awesome episode one problem. What? It stopped. It, well, all things stop. Well, I don't, I know, and I don't like that. Well, okay, what are you going to do about it then? Cry a little bit. Well, that doesn't solve anything. No, but it makes me feel better. Oh, sure it does. Yes, okay. If you, if, you, if you think that's what you need to do, cry it out, buddy. Suck it up, buddy. <sighs> okay, yeah, I'm done. I have a better idea. What's that? Let's play part two. Hey! Yes. <laughs> you like that segue, did you? That's a good idea. Okay. Sadie and Dave continue to debate over the forthcoming project children's books to be released by M Kids Press, plus corporate downfall of an American icon, the Twinkie. Who? <laughs> the Twinkie. Oh, the but Twinkie's see, not dead. But that was in December of 2012. I still see them bastards on the shelf. Well, it's because they have a half-life of four million years. That's true. But they're damn good. They are damn good. <laughs> That's Tallahassee. Oh, that is true. Yep. He was going crazy for them Twinkies. There's there's that other callback. That's right. All right, start this episode. Here we go. Win in Burbank, number three. Welcome to Win in Burbank. I'm Dave Montoya. And I'm S. Sadie Burbank. Last week, just as you were getting ready to start speaking uh, and talking about your other projects, I kind of cut you short because we ran out of time. So we're going to call this part part two, and I'm going to go ahead and let you take over and talk a little bit about your other projects. So go ahead and take it away. Thanks, David. As far as my other work is concerned, um, you know, we I started on that cookbook. Yes. Um, and I got stumped because I can't draw. I really need an illustrator with some skill. I will consider maybe cutting this next part out, but, <laughs> but it, it needs to be said. Not only does the, the person need... To have skill, but they have to have a high functioning level of literacy and a low expectation of remuneration. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's not a lot of money in it for you now. But if you need to get your name known and your work known, then we're your kid. Well, and that's kind of the whole basis behind the company. I mean, originally, you know, exactly. I started out exactly. doing my own stuff, but then we've kind of shifted gears over almost the last ten years. To focus on getting people's names out there. Right. Um, 
and and I know that's kind of certain projects throughout the years. That's what we've had issues with right. people wanting wanting to be rich and famous, but that's not what we're about. Right. We're about getting your name out there, uh, you know, building a portfolio for a person, and then you know, possibly if if someone else picks you up and you become rich and famous, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's fine. Yeah. But that's not what we're about. We're we're the stepping stone. We yeah. know we're the stepping stone. Yeah. Well, other than that, I'd like to get Orange Cat published. But again, an illustrator is needed. Um, I'd love to see Brand New Puppy out. Brand New Puppy, the reason I wrote it, besides the fact that I think it's a nice story, uh, was kind of, when I was a kid, there was a book about a puppy. Ah. Oh. God, I wish I could remember it. It's one of those golden books. You know what a golden oh, book yeah, is? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, and then the I can see that little puppy had a little round head, and he was fuzzy. I remember feeling the fuzz in the story while my mom, on the book while my mom read the story. And it was something about puppy. Puppy was in the title. I don't think it was new puppy or anything like that. But anyhow, um, that has always kind of been in the back of my head somewhere. So when I thought about writing the story about Riley, he was brand new to us. He was a puppy, so brand new puppy just kind of fit became the, the title uh, of it. You know, I'd like to see that one out. I have, uh, I did finish Scurry, uh, or a version of Scurry. Um, a less scurry version? <laughs> you know, it's just maybe a teenager level. Um, but it's a short story. I, um, I think the last time we talked about that, you were going to try to make it into like a novelette or novella. Possibly I was. Possibly I was. And then we were I have stuff. I have stuff on my computer that I've even forgotten I've written. I, I don't. That doesn't make any sense. Anybody that's written anything knows how how involved you get in what you're writing. Uh, but I have this weird capacity to once it's down on paper, it's out of my head. Right. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Oh, good because I thought it was strange. Well, all right. Um, so I don't remember it a lot of times. That's why I had to print out everything for Convict to rewrite it because I couldn't remember what I'd written. You know, there's no way in hell I could sit down and rewrite that stuff without the original. You know, Ooh, I don't want to think about. It. Anyway, uh, I have. A couple of, uh, several other things on the computer that I've written, um, some of them that I've printed out. I did a real short essay thing that in college, actually, um, called To Keep or Not to Keep. You've seen it. Uh, It was about all the shit my mother (laughs) and father left me when they died. And, uh, you know going through it trying to decide whether to keep it or not to keep it and all of the motivations behind those various decisions you know most of which were inherited from my parents those motivations I mean right um, and it's kind of funny and I actually won a cash prize for that it was actually my first published work I felt very proud Um, I haven't done any of that writing yet but I actually think there may be a couple more novels in me um, about the time that I got, you know, between the time I came back to the States from Liberia until Ernie, well, maybe even after Ernie, um, there's, there's a few stories in there that 
could support a novel, I think. So, and I haven't really told you about that. Actually, when you were talking, I was just thinking an S. Sadie Burbank um, anthology mm. with all your, you know, short stories, essays, and whatnot in a in a book. That could, that could happen. It might be kind of an odd one, though, because they're so, as you say, varied in style and in um, genre. Um, but you know, it's got possibilities. We'll have to we'll have to think about that. I don't I don't I don't think that I don't know. It might work. You're, that's your field of expertise, not mine. I just write them. You put them where you want them. Uh, yeah well because I I think number one when I I think of that and I know it's it's kind of an interesting uh, comparison what I'm about to say but up there there's the the whole book of Edgar Allan Poe right yeah 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 oh one of my faves probably my earliest um inspiration to read was Poe Poe, yeah, I totally dug him at a very early age. I'm not sure why, but there's something about him just really clicked with me, and I I love reading Poe. Well, I have that collection plus over in my library. I have another uh, complete co- Do collection. Yeah, uh, and yeah, he, reading he through great. all his stories, you know, a lot of people kind of stick them as the master or the father of, of telling horror stories. Mm. But if you actually read his poetry and, and more other oh, short yeah, stories, yeah. it was a lot more than that. Oh, definitely. And they stuck it together, you know, the whole book together under his name. And that's true. how it worked. That's true. That's true. And I think if we did something like that, we would do the same thing. You know, the the anthology of S. Sadie Burbank. And that would work that way. I have also considered... Uh, publishing my lyrics. Oh, you know the and and uh, people who read Red Hills will not know this when they read it. But each chapter is preceded by a line or two, uh, and a date and location given right. for those. And those are actually excerpts from songs that I wrote with my guitar when I was having my recovery from depression period you might call it um, most of them were written then some of them were actually written later than that but most of them were written during that period of time and um, Frosty, mm-hmm. a friend of mine who's no longer with us uh, read several of them and she said these are, these are poetry maybe they are I've read quite a few and and not only the the excerpts for the book, but I remember you giving me, you know. Oh, did I give you some to read? Well, you you gave me printouts. You never gave yeah. me a digital copy, but just printouts. Yeah. I remember reading them, and they did. They they felt very much like a poem. Cool. I might do those because there are lots and lots of them. <laughs> some of them are kind of crap, but most of them are not. They're they're they, and they're all heartfelt. Uh, uh, when as you know, when I uh, started teaching myself how to play the guitar I couldn't play right and I've never been one for taking lessons I did that once I took piano lessons and I was so pissed after two lessons that I couldn't play like Tchaikovsky that I gave it up 
literally, <laughs> really, because uh, I was a stupid kid and I thought that would happen. Um, so I got a guitar, knowing I couldn't play it, uh, but I thought, what's to know? I can strum and I can figure out how to play it. It's not that hard. It's just six strings and a piece of wood, right? So I fiddled around with my you know, fingers on the fret and figured out, and accidentally I would hit a note that sounded good. And I have some musical skill, not much, but, you know, I sang in the choir and crap like that. Um, so I, I knew chords when I heard them. And, um, and then I would write down, I would draw pictures of where my fingers were on the different frets and stuff like that because I didn't know the names of chords and I was too cheap to go buy a book. You know. <laughs> I've never, never been one to le learn from reading instructions. Um, and so then when I would hit a, a chord I liked or a, a tone I liked, then I would start with that and I would sing something that sounded good to me and I and I but I couldn't make up a song without words and so I would sort of make up the words and the song as I went along and then I would play it over and over and over again and that's how I learned to play the guitar I got the had the little calluses and everything I was very good at it people used to ask me to play for them and shit I even wrote a song for a woman's wedding really yeah yeah I did and she loved it I sang it at their wedding too well, maybe that's definitely something that we should look into because yeah. um, poetry books yeah. are, are, you know, something that a lot of people like. Yeah. And these are not necessarily, you might think they would be because of the, again, they were written in the 60, in late, late, late 60s and 70s. You might think they'd be stylistically along those lines, uh, very hippie-ish and whatnot, but they're not. Um, Truthfully, they're just really out of my soul. It was an expression. It, the, the, I started to say, and I got sidetracked. The reason that I wanted to play the guitar in the first place, or, well, no, that's not even true. Um, serendipitously, as I learned to play the guitar, making up these songs, I wound up making up songs that helped me vent my frustration that I was going through at the time and depression that I was going through at the time that I didn't even know I was going through at the time. Makes sense. Good. I, I yeah, whenever you think about it, send me, you know, send them over to me. And, and I will. I will. Look at them. I will. Get some extra paper for your printer. Yeah. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. Well, and, and for some reason, this printer just eats a lot of paper. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and these these are each on a piece of paper. Right. So I I could take the time to retype them three or four to a piece, but I'm not going to because I need to be working on convict. Right. Speaking of eating, though. <laughs> Were we? <laughs> okay. Well, I, I segue from the printer eating eating paper. Oh, to there you go. All right. Eating. Yes, eating. Okay. Um, I was reading online, you know, online news. I think it was Yahoo News. That's a cool tree. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just saw the tree on your table. That's cool. I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> um, I was reading online Yahoo News, and obviously uh, Hostess, Twinkie, Ho-Hos, mm. they're going out of business because of a, a union dispute. Yeah, stupid shit. I mean... <clears throat> Did I say that out loud? <laughs> <laughs> and I guess there's a factory near or in Burbank. Mm. 
So I, I'm, I, what was it? It was like a huge amount of number. I, I want to say like 3,800 is the number that keeps popping in my head. Employees? Oh, employees going out. Yeah, Merry Christmas, huh? Happy, and, happy Thanksgiving, yeah. And I, I, I wanted to, well, number one, bring it in because it has to do with, uh, you know, Burbank. Mm. But I, I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on it, you know, because... It's it's hard for me to sit and think, well, Twinkies, one of the most famous things in U.S. culture. Mm. Everybody knows a Twinkie. Um, Everybody's used them in their movies. Right. Yeah. And to, to just say, okay, we're going to shut down an entire factory. Mm. Look, so, well, there's more than a factory. They're shutting down an entire way of life for some people. Right. I mean... God, I can't. Um, Die Hard. Yes. Had Twinkies in it. Uh, everybody has Twinkies. How can they? How can they say there will be no more Twinkies? That's like saying there'll be no more Christmas. It, it's well, the, kind of. You went to Die Hard. I went to Zombieland. Have you seen that movie? I don't think so. Um, Woody Harrelson. He. This is post-apocalyptic zombie kind of thing. Oh, maybe I did, yeah, come to think of it, yeah. And yeah. his sole mission in life was just to find one more Twinkie. Yeah, yeah, I did see that. It was hilarious. So, yes. so though, no zombie apocalypse, I think we might get some more people like that, lifelong, you know, quest to find the last Twinkie. Well, there's people already out there buying them up. Oh, I know. You can buy them on eBay, I think, by now. Did you see the one on eBay? No. Uh, someone selling a pack of, and I'm not joking, somebody selling a pack of Twinkies for $20,000. They're asking that for it. Well, yeah, they're asking. Asking and getting, as you well know, are not the same thing. Two different things. Totally. But see, folks, I always have a contingency plan for everything I do. <laughs> and on my nice little smartphone here, I actually have the recipe Oh yeah, you can make your own Twinkies. Of this making, is true. <laughs> of making well, the Well, like Twinkies. I told you, the the main people. I just saw this on a on a uh, what do you call that? Uh, national television show. Uh, what are they called? ABC, NBC, CBS. What are they called? Syndicated them? shows. Yeah, I guess. Uh, they were talking about this very issue, and the comment made was that the one who's going to benefit most from hostess shutting down. Is going to be Little Debbie. Yes. Because yes. Little Debbie makes her version of a Twinkie. Yes. And I don't know, could, could, do we, could we do blindfold tests and compare? We could have six weeks ago before they closed down the Twinkie manufacturing plant. But, uh, you know, in under desperate circumstances, one could pretend, I suppose. It wouldn't be the same for you Twinkie advocates out there. I'm sure you're going, what is she talking about? She's out of her mind. But the truth of the matter is, we may have to face life without Twinkies and Ho-Hos and Doodads and Ding Dongs and all the others that they make. And Wonder Bread. Oh, God, yes. In fact, that was also a comment made. If if Wonder Bread doesn't build bodies 12 ways, who will? Uh, we'll just have to find out. Plus, Nature's uh, Pride yes. is one of theirs. And I, myself, have consumed Nature Pride buns in the past, as my buns will attest. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, the, and it, it seems an extreme. Uh, Ernie's comment was that, that's a little extreme just to protest unions. Yes, you know, there I are, agree. and in in whatever you're leaning toward or against unions might be, they are becoming more and more a thing of our culture uh, because employees are not always getting a fair shake from their employers. Um, a lot of times people need to band together and, and support one another for equal or appropriate pay and benefits for their services because that's the only way they're going to get them. So, um, what it, like I said, whatever you're leaning for or against unions might be, it seems uh, kind of a absurd overreaction and sort of a knee-jerk reaction to uh, yes, and absurd uh, to say the least to. Um, to something that I don't think they could have avoided the the I, I, how can I say this if they didn't stop they would have had to go union right so it's like cutting your nose off to spite your face to me it's it's kind of like because I'm in a union. You know, I, yeah, I work exactly. at a hospital that's union. My dad was in a union for years as a painter. And it would be like, best case example, you know, kind of shifting it to hospital is, okay, the employees could not reach an agreement, or not the employees, but the executives could not reach an agreement with the employees' union. So instead of you know, continuing to negotiate a better contract, they're like, we'll just shut down the whole hospital. That's uh-huh. the exact same yeah, thing that it happened. Is, it is. And although uh, the effects might be considered somewhat different, you know, having to do without Twinkies versus having to do without life support might be slightly different. Well, it depends on who you ask. I suppose. And for some people, Twinkies are life support. Um, but yeah, it, it just. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they were just tired of making Twinkies. Maybe they just didn't want to do it anymore and they were looking for a good excuse. You know, businesses are having trouble anymore. Um, And we don't need to go into all of the reasons. Everybody knows all the reasons that that businesses are having trouble from outsourcing to uh, the economy sucking right now to a lot of other things. more and more people looking for work, fewer and fewer jobs available, all those things coming into play. And now here's 3,800 more people uh, beating the streets looking for a job in the, you know, in the wintertime, holidays coming. Uh, I can only imagine their stress level. It, it's got to be far and away worse than those of us who are going to have to live without Twinkies. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, it's It's... But they did what they did, and whatever their motivations were, it was their right. It, you know, this is a free freaking country. You're you have the right to close your business down if you want to. You know, for whatever reasons, it, it, it's your business. You can do what you want. You know, right? And 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 everything's a crapshoot. 
I know I, that. <laughs> I, I have not seen any ironclad anything, I don't care union or not, where you can go to work for somebody and be guaranteed that you're going to have X number of dollars coming in with all the benefits you want and a job for life. Show me the man that does that. I'll go to work for him tomorrow, and I'm retired. Okay? <laughs> yeah. It doesn't exist, and it, never, it isn't ever going to exist. And anybody that's waiting for that, get off your ass and go to work because it isn't going to happen. Yeah, exactly. You're not going to find that. It does not exist. Trust me. If it did, we'd all be working for them. Uh, it, it kind of leads me, and I'm not going to go into this because we, I know we're short on time, but my mind instantly popped back to FDR and mm-hmm. after the Great Depression. And, mm-hmm. and when he set up those um, the, the work, works, yeah. the work camp. Um, that's kind of like I, I almost see that happening here soon. I really do. Well, they've already uh, done similarly uh, work details that that uh, have been designed to do things that needed to get done anyhow that the government needed to get done, but put it in the hands of uh, unemployed workers and and let them have a chance at. And doing and there's some of that has already gone on, and probably will continue to go on. And I personally don't see anything wrong with it. Oh, absolutely not. You know, I mean, any any time we can get people back to work doing things that need to be done, I'm all for it. Not necessarily for things that don't need to be done. Not if I'm picking up the tab through my taxes, right. but if it's something that needs to be done, I'm all for it. Well, for me, just a couple of years ago, you know we hit financial hardship. I mean, oh, yeah. hard. And, you know, I've got a license. I, I'm, you know, I do what I do. I'm educated. But you know what? At that point in time, yeah, I would have picked up a mop in a bucket. Oh, hell yes. Anybody would. You would. And, and you would now, too. If, oh, if you If you had a block of time that you knew you could commit to a second job, you would. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, working part-time at the at the whim of an organization that doesn't know exactly what day they're going to need you every week, that, that makes it hard. To, and a lot of people are in that position. Um, a lot of be, people are being held to less than part-time hours because then the company doesn't have to pay them benefits. Right. And any company that says that's not true is lying. They do that for a reason. Um, it's cheaper for them, and they can manipulate their employees by pitting them against one another almost by saying, "Well, Harry said he'll work on Thursday. Uh, if you won't, so you know." And Harry, of course, makes more money than you do, but you got your wife's birthday that Thursday and uh, well but if you don't want to work Harry said he'll work you know damn well they're not going to pay Harry to work because he earns two dollars an hour more than you do right you know they're just jockeying to pay less money per hour less money because it's all bottom line it's all about the money it always has been it always will be and anybody that thinks it isn't is kidding themselves and needs to stop doing that because the good guys, you know, it's like Dr. fucking Welby. He, Dr. Welby. Nobody knows who Dr. Welby was. Years and years ago, Robert Young, an actor. Yes. Of some note, starred in a television series called Dr. Welby. And he sort of became the standard for doctors. And he did house calls and stuff like that. Well, in my profession as a respiratory therapist, before I retired... 
uh, I frequently came across patients who lamented the fact that doctors were so cold and uncaring and never came to house and called on their patients and so on. And I'd have to tell them, look, the days of Dr. Welby are gone. That doctor doesn't exist anymore, if he ever really did. Right. Okay? Yeah, doctors used to come on house calls because that was the only way they could get work. That's the only way they could get any money was to come to your house to see you when you were sick. They couldn't get you to their office. Well, in the first place, they didn't have an office. Right. They worked out of a little black bag with stethoscope and stuff like that in it. So those days are gone. The days of the beneficent uh, employer who uh, at Christmas time hands out turkeys and, and bonuses and stuff like that for the average everyday business those guys don't exist anymore sure the big guys they're handing out you know million dollar bonuses every year and we all know about them and we're not going to go into that no (laughs) but the average employer is he's in business to make money to make a, a product or a service that's going to make him money he is at work just like his employees are at work Employees go to work to make money to feed their kids and their families, okay? Bosses of businesses, owners of businesses do the same thing. They have their businesses to make money. Right. Now, it may not be to put food on the table because they may already be past that. It may be to put a third car in the garage. But whatever their financial motivation is, it is for the money they're working Okay, we're all working for the money. Right, that's what it comes down to. Yeah, you're working for money. The guy that owns that hospital you work in is working for money. Okay, he may be getting more of it than you are, but that's why he's there. Right. And as long as we all understand what the name of the game is, everybody should be kind of okay with that. But somewhere along the line, we get the idea that our bosses should be generous to us and overly so. They should give us $20 an hour instead of 15 because we want it. Right. You Not know. that you deserve it so much. Just Yeah, just because you showed up, you know. Well, the thing is, that isn't where it's at. He's not going to give you $20 an hour because you're a nice guy. Right. He's going to give you 15 because that's what he can get you for. You'll work for him for 15 and he knows it, and you'll, he'll pay you that. You won't work for him for 10 and he knows that. So, so he'll pay you 15 Right. He's not going to pay you 20 Hell yes, you'd work for him, so would half the people in this block. <laughs> okay? But he's not going to do that because his bottom line is affected, and the bottom line is where it's at. And... I'm glad you kind of brought that up. I mean, we kind of shifted from the Twinkie thing to that. We did, sort of. I'm sorry. But no, 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 it's okay. Because one of the things that I've been wanting to talk about is why I started Jaisal Mod. You know, mm-hmm. not only just the Jaisal Mod cast, but Jaisal mm-hmm. Mod itself. Jaisal Mon is nonprofit. And I'm not talking nonprofit like the hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking. Really real, non, real, really non, non-profit. Real non-profit. Uh, in fact, you know, any money that we make, like for example, this show, uh, someone purchases a um, 
you know a, a premium download it's going to get split three ways one for the guy who's uh, did the the uh, advertisement right because that's in his contract right. you're going to get half right of that right and then I'm going to get half right there's nothing going back into the company right so in a technical realistic base we're non-profit right. and the reason why I wanted to do that let me see where we're times at here the reason why I wanted to do that is because MythWorks has become such it's not what it used to be mm-hmm. when I sat down as the CEO of MythWorks it's no longer oh this is going to be a fun project mm-hmm. this is the, the now the thought is how much is this going to cost it became a business how much profit mm-hmm. you know and, and you know this as much as I do you own 5% of it mm-hmm. now we have shareholders so now my thought is not only about you know profits and the, the overheads and the bottom line now we have to start thinking about well what are the, the shareholders what what are their, their cuts going to be and, and, and it I don't want to say it's not fun because that's kind of me you know, I, I think I'm a, I'm well, a decent... Well, no, but it, it presents an aspect of it that you're not fun... You're not having fun dealing with. Right. And that's typical. Again, businesses... Um, oh, gosh. I don't care what your business... You can have a taco truck. You can have an automobile dealership. Whatever your business is, there are parts of it you're not going to like. But they are necessary evils to your success right if you're if you're having a taco truck you got to have licensure you got to have the food inspectors come through all the time you got to have that sucker snap clean all the time you got to have the food at a certain temperature all the time right those things are not fun the only fun part's handing the taco to the guy and getting four bucks for it <laughs> yeah. that's fun the rest of it sucks but it's part and parcel of the business. Same thing with the car dealership. You gotta pay somebody to be the mechanic, to be the detailer, to sell the cars, to write up the paperwork on it. All this other crap has to be done when all you really wanted to do was put Joe Blow and his family in a nice new Chevy or whatever. Right. You know. So it, it, there's always going to be something about the business you do that you're not going to enjoy. And you can pare it down, you can bring it back, like Jaisal, okay, uh-huh. you can do that, but the rest of the businesses that you've got your little irons in the fires of, unless you kill them, you can't. Right. There are going to be parts of them that have to be dealt with, That and there's only so much of that you can delegate. And you've found out the hard way that Sometimes delegating those things isn't all that successful. Right. And so it means that either you have to do it or it doesn't get done, and it has to get done. And so you're, it's just an ugly cycle. You've got to come back to the reality of it. You created a monster, and you have to feed the monster or kill him. You know, just like Frankenstein. He created a monster, and the only thing he could do was either tame him or kill him. And that's why I wanted to do Jaiselmon, um, just because it does. It's not going to require that executive level. I'm not looking at overhead. 
I'm not looking to make a profit. I just, and I, I said this before, I don't remember what show I said this. I just, I want to talk to you. Mm-hmm. I want to talk to my sister. I want to talk to Terry. That's what the podcast is all about. Mm-hmm. I, the money kind of follows. You know, if, if we have people that are going to. If it happens, it happens. Exactly. If it doesn't, okay. And, and that doesn't really bother me. Yeah. Now, as the CEO with MythWorks, that's totally different. Like I said, you know, it's just, it's kind of fun for me to sit and think about it because 20 years ago, I was a, a 15-year-old kid who drew really crappy comic books and made photocopies and stapled them in the middle and sold them. Mm-hmm. And that's how it started. How mm-hmm. this is, You know, and, and over the 20 years, you know, now we were evolved. And now with the new contract with the big distributor and printer, you know, now things are even going to go further. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I've I've said, um, state of the company address is coming out in December, because I did the first state of the company in December of 2010. We've employed all of the actions that I said I was going to do in the next two years. So now that I've done that, now it's time for me to say this is what we're going to do mm-hmm. now. Um, and I, I've already mentioned this a long time ago, and you, you don't believe me. Um, <laughs> if I can find a CEO to take my spot for MythWorks, you know, I, I, I do plan on stepping away from MythWorks, letting someone else guide it, and then I could focus more on Jason I can focus more on the podcast, I can focus more on my own writing, and that's kind of where I want to be right now. I do believe you. I do believe you. What you don't believe, what you don't understand, okay? Let me give you an example. When my kids were young, and they used to have to study math, Mm -hmm. Bob especially said, I don't understand why I have to study math. When I get old and grown up and rich, I'm going to pay somebody to do my math for me. You know what I told him? What? How are you going to know he's not cheating you? If you don't know math. If you don't know math. You don't know what he's doing. If you get a CEO to run your business for you, you won't be able to walk away from it. Not if you're smart. You're still going to have to watch him. You're still going to have to pay attention to what he's doing, how he's doing it, and who he's doing it with. Because if you don't, he could not necessarily do dirty, but do... Mismanage. Some, yeah, some take you in a direction you don't intend for the business to go. And so you're always going to have to have some oversight. I don't care what the employee is, what the employee does. Right. You're going to have to do that. That's, that's the taco truck. One of the things that, and, and again, you'll read it you know, when it comes out in December... Um, that I talked about is once that happens, once I find someone to be a CEO, uh, one thing that's going to happen is board of directors comes back. Mm-hmm. Two is I become the chairman of the board of directors. And that's kind of my... And, and you said you're right. You're right. I will never, as long as I own 65% of this company... Mm-hmm. I will never be able to fully walk away. You can't. You dare not. You dare not. If you do, you may as well just give the whole damn thing away to start with because basically that's what you'll be doing. Once you take... You have a one-year-old. Right. Would you go out on 
Tussing Ranch Road and stop the first guy walking down the street and say, here, will you please take care of my kid for me for a day or two? Absolutely not. Okay. Well, you're not going to do the same thing with your business. You're not going to take your, your child business and give it to somebody and say, here, run this for me. You're just not. I don't care how bad you want to. Right. I know it sounds wonderful. Oh, thank God I found somebody who can run the company for me the way I want it run. Well, I'll tell you right now, he can't climb in your head. He can't know your feelings and motivations, even if you tell them to him, he, unless he's the most incredibly sensitive person in the world. He's not going to be able to feel the way you do about the company. It isn't realistic to even hope for that. Right. Okay. So there's no way he's going to know how to run the company the way you want it run. He's going to run it the way he thinks it should be run. Right. That's normal. <clears throat> you got no choice. You you have to you have you have to be there. Well, I I would say that I wouldn't sell the company. But if someone pulled a, like a Lucas on me and, and offered oh, well, me four point four God, yeah. billion dollars, we already talked about that today. Hell yes, buy me, <laughs> baby. I'm yours. Four billion? Are you kidding me? Yeah. I'd do it for one. Yeah. Yeah, had me at billion. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah, he got paid. Uh, oh, oh my God. Four billion four hundred million. Yeah, isn't that a sad state of affairs? God love him. So, if anybody from Disney is listening, I will sell the company right now. Me too. <laughs> Absolutely. My book is for sale. <laughs> All my books are for sale. The books I haven't even written are for sale. Absolutely. My body is for sale. <laughs> oh, God. All right, folks. Uh, we're going to wrap it up for this week. So, I'm David K. Montoya. And I'm S. Sadie Burbank. And remember, folks, what happens in Burbank ends up on a podcast. Have a good night. Think Tallahassee would have liked that episode? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I did. I did. Well, I'm now on a Twinkie. Didn't Actually, no, I want a snowball. snowball. Didn't we start this episode with pizza? We did. And now I'm eating a Twinkie. <laughs> that's, that's the... Uh... Good thing there was nothing about shakes in there, huh? <laughs> <laughs> like I say, uh, not the most healthy of diets out there, but... Well, no, not really. It's tasty, though. Yes. Oh. And it's back. Look at that. Oh, this equipment's going to make me insane. There must be a loose wire in your oh, mixing board. There's a loose wire, all right. <laughs> Tell you what, let's stop this episode before I, uh, you know, publicly break my board. You want to privately break your board? That's right. All right. It deserves a private funeral. Do I have to leave or can I? No, no, you can hold it. Yeah. All righty. <laughs> In that case, until next Friday. Yes, this has been Mike and Rob, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.